It's my privilege to hand over to Tim, uh, and I think Tasha's going to be doing a reading as well, but uh, to hand over to Tim and to say, Tim, my mate, I'm so excited to hear you preach to us, and um, uh, you're looking lovely there, a little bit darker than me, obviously, in your uh, setup there. Um, lovely lights behind you. Um, and, you look uh, brilliant, Luke. Brilliant. Thrilled. Go for it, mate. Cool, man. Thank you so much, and uh, good morning. Oh, hey. Say, hi, sweetie. Hi, Adelaide. Oh, the best. Oh, well, good morning, everyone, and good morning, Addy. Um, And uh, it's so humbling to be here. It really is, to have the opportunity to bring today's message. Um, And this has been uh, a special week uh, this week in the life of Common Ground, as we've been getting fresh inspirations from Scripture each day this Easter week, this Easter Holy Week. Um, what rich content, hey? For those of you who've, who've, uh, who've uh, jumped into that, what, a, what an amazing uh, journey it's been to go through uh, the, the, the days and the moments leading up to this day. Uh, big thanks to Luke and the preaching team and the citywide preaching team for all of their hard work in putting that together. Well done, well done. Uh, if you miss them, hey, it's never too late. You can go check them out um, in your own time on the, the YouTube or the Facebook uh, channel. Um, but, but some of you may not know uh, that I'm a numbers guy. Well, probably a lot of you do, but, but for those who don't know me that well, I'm a numbers guy. I've always, always been drawn to numerics, measurements, statistics, um, you name it. In fact, you can ask Natasha, um, ask me anything about a memory involving numbers, and I'll likely recite it by heart. But you can also ask her, and then uh, she'll tell you that other memories not involving numbers don't count on me to remember much. Pun intended. Um, so you can imagine my, my excitement when my children, and there you guys are, are learning uh, more about numbers at home and at school. I'm loving it. We're way beyond counting by ones and twos now. The things are getting interesting when the numbers are getting bigger. To see their faces of confusion and frustration uh, when trying to grasp at the size of a big number like um, 43 or 67, which incidentally, are the number of sleeps to go until his and her birthdays this year. It's so far away. But as adults, we trip, up, we trip up on big numbers too, don't we? Especially the really big ones. You know, try to, try to explain a thousand and a million. I, we could probably get there just. But one billion, it's just near incomprehensible, isn't it? These illustrations help maybe. You consider that a million seconds add up to about 12 days, but a billion seconds, 32 years. And for the step counters out there and the hikers, um, there are 1 million steps, plus or minus, um, from here, Cape Town, to Addo. But a billion step hike would take you around the world more than 15 times. So when we think about how God created the universe and the 100 billion stars in it, never mind the almost 200 billion other uh, galaxies, we are out of our depth. Some things are just too much for our human minds to comprehend. Things with such a scope and depth that are just beyond our limit to grasp. Some might say that this is a bad thing, but despite my affinity for numbers, it's humbling to know that we have limits. Well, today, Good Friday, we're looking at the account that describes the events the day Jesus died, 
I mean, talk about exceeding limits. Jesus, who was there for the creation of the billions of stars in the beginning, walked a road marked with suffering as human along an undeservedly, excruciatingly shame and pain-filled road for you and me. I mean, our minds try to grasp the full extent of what happened and why, but it can be overwhelming. Well, we're looking at the book of Mark today, which is the earliest and shortest of the four written Gospels. And what distinguishes Mark, what I love about this, what it distinguishes Mark about from the others is that this story takes a literary approach that builds a steady tension and finally explodes with Jesus' crucifixion. And that makes Mark's account quite a fitting way to help us focus in on the essentials of what happened on the day of Jesus' death. Because, as we'll find, the essentials are more than enough for our hearts and minds to contemplate this morning. So, uh, let's read uh, the scripture today out of Mark 15. Over to you, love. Trying to get the kids sorted at the same time. So, this is Mark 15, verse 1. Very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the, whole San, and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. So they bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. You have said so, Jesus replied. The chief priests accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of. But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. Now, it was the custom of, uh, at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews, asked Pilate, knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews, Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed, asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is, the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! Again and again, they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put put his clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him, sorry, they forced him to carry the cross. 
They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, so you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down from the cross that he may see, that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine and vinegar, wine vinegar, put it on his staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes down to take him down, comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he had died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. Uh, Let's let's pray. Thank you, God, for this privilege to gather like this under your word today. Today of all days, when we look at the core of our Christian faith, Why don't you calm our hearts and our minds as we cover a day's events that are deeply personal and painful to you. Father God, give us courage to bear our hearts to you as you bear yours to us. Why don't you peel away uh, any barriers that are keeping us from being fully present today, um, even in the midst of uh, uh, being at home Prepare our hearts for what your spirit will say to us today. Amen. Well, at Easter time, I don't know if you've ever asked this question, but uh, why do we dwell on the Friday and instead not just look ahead, look ahead to Sunday? Isn't Sunday the better uh, one of the pair? And we were likened to it, but if we were likened it to a storybook, uh, we would begin on page one and go on to page two and three and so on. So today, let's, let's approach the moments in the story this way, because we don't want to miss anything. With this kind of approach, it'll be one in which we don't know what happens next. We're one of the onlookers that day. And put another way, in this newfound Zoom culture, we're live streaming, and there is no way to scrub forward to the next scene. We've got to catch every second as it comes, just as those who were there that day. I say this because I think, and maybe it's just true for me, but I'm just going to go out on a limb and say I think that we've allowed, many of us have allowed, a sentimental attitude 
towards the cross to creep in. Maybe for some of us, today's story is a bit too familiar. Surely it's really important, but we've been there, done that. I could tell you what happens next, kind of thing. But still for others, maybe we gloss over the details because we just don't want to go there. It's too graphic. Um, It's too gruesome. It's just uncomfortable. Let me just say this. Today we're going to witness parts of the story that may be familiar and may be uncomfortable. We may choose to, to we, or we may need to choose to shift a yesterday's news kind of attitude to one with the same kind of passion we have for new and trending headline, headlines on News 24. I mean, earlier this week it was all about a cargo ship that was stuck in the Suez Canal, but, and today it's, well, it's yesterday's news. What, what ship? Well, let's open our hearts to a deeper passion, desire, dare I say delight, in fully engaging with the details of Jesus' death. Because wildly, incomprehensibly, it happened for you, for me, and everyone on planet Earth. Moment by moment, let's walk through today's passage to witness what takes place as if we were there today, if we, if, as if we were there that day. So first, we see that Jesus remains silent in the face of many accusations. The only time Jesus speaks is essentially admitting that he is the king of the Jews. Do you see that? Thereafter, we notice that there must be something going on along the lines of a a massive self-control of silence in the face of the many false charges being thrown at him. Besides, what good would it do to speak? Thanks to the religious leaders, the, the cards were stacked against him. Now Pilate, who is the only one in the room with the authority to sentence Jesus to death, is amazed, impressed in other translations by what is happening. He's beginning to work out what's going on here. So we move on. We, we, we next we see uh, Jesus is substituted in place for the guilty. He's substituted. Indeed, Pilate figures it out. Jesus is innocent. The chief priests are out for Jesus and are stirring up riot-like demands from the crowd to kill him. Pilate plays into this. Well, uh, we should say, takes careful steps to make sure and make it clear that it's the raucous crowd, not him, who is effectively sentencing Jesus to death. And so, between the calculated effort of the religious leaders and the cowardly act of Pilate to give in to the crowd, there's an exchange, a substitution, so that the innocent Jesus dies whilst the guilty Barabbas is sent free, set free. Now consider this. If you were an onlooker that day who manages to resist getting caught up in the crowd's chance and has a coherent mind, you are probably asking yourself this question. What in the world is going on? How is this happening? It must be surreal, unbelievable, mind-numbing to watch the situation deteriorate from the, the waving palms of adoration and praise for Jesus just a few days ago to a riot-like scene with furious calls for his execution. And as if that's not enough, this is no ordinary execution. I mean, crucifixion is the ultimate death sentence for the worst criminals. The body of the accused is pierced or tied to a large wooden cross and left to hang. And with crucifixion, Romans take execution 
to a whole new level by making the road to death a public one and most excruciating. And it was not just to inflict physical pain and torment, not only to cast extreme shame on the accused, but also to send a message to everyone. This is what happens when you cross the line. Well, Jesus is receiving an over-the-top death sentence for committing no crime, whilst a convicted criminal goes free. Just doesn't make sense. The cross is waiting, but first, Jesus is mocked and beaten. Roman soldiers who are skilled tormentors are also having a bit of fun with Jesus here, mocking him as a, as a king by putting a purple robe on him for royalty and a crown of thorns bowing down to him in mockery. And during this time, Jesus is in severe tra- pain and trauma. Before this, Jesus had just been scourged, as it says in the text, or whipped with weapons designed to inflict unspeakable cuts and tears into his skin. So the, the, the wounds that, that resulted are, are, are oozing and, and likely stuck to the purple robe, making it all the more painful when the soldiers stripped him of it. And that crown of thorns that likely dug deep into his temples around his head, where more blood is easily shed. And now we see Jesus becomes extremely weakened physically. Now it's customary for the accused to carry his own cross to the execution site, in this case Golgotha, and it's quite heavy. And the soldiers force someone from the crowd, a stranger from another land, to carry the cross for Jesus. But we don't know exactly why it happens this way, but we can tell a few things. Jesus has likely lost a lot of blood from the earlier beatings. Maybe the soldiers went a little bit too far. So it's possible that he's going to die before he even gets to the execution site. And as the Roman soldiers were carrying out an order of execution by crucifixion, it would be their failure if Jesus died along the way beforehand. So they acted quickly, and they forced someone to help. Ironically, helping Jesus now is no really no help at all. It means there's more suffering for him to experience on the cross, waiting for him. And then, Jesus refuses to numb the pain. Wine mixed with myrrh is a widely known painkiller of the time, but Jesus refuses the offer. Why? I mean, he's at death's door. In just a few moments, he's going to be nailed to the cross. Now, if not already, would be a good time to ease the pain, right? Well, in his refusal, he's essentially decided that he does not want his senses to be dulled or numbed. He's going to feel everything. Next, we see him stripped and shamed. Apart from the pain, consider the extreme shame that Jesus is experiencing right now. Naked, in public, up on the cross. I don't have a word for it. Unimaginable is my best guess, but I know it's worse than that. Meanwhile, the soldiers are deciding who will get what among his garments. Tunics and the like are valuable pieces of clothing that can be reused or sold. And then it happens. Jesus is crucified as a criminal with criminals. 
And it's typical to post the charge against the accused on the cross for all to see the wrongdoing. And the charge on record for Jesus here, for his execution, was the one thing he admitted to. King of the Jews. It's hardly a charge that warrants execution. And what's more, Jesus had done nothing wrong. But then again, at a glance, not much of this morning has made much sense so far. An innocent man was being executed in the most horrific way, and the people wanted it to happen. It's not over yet. Jesus is attacked with insults. There's no mercy happening here. There's no one to step in and stop this madness. The religious leaders are getting what they wanted. They're just adding fuel to the fire now, just to make sure that it's done. Everyone, even the criminals beside him, are getting in on the attack. And now is when things get a bit weird, but also begin to make a little bit of sense. Let's look. Verse 33, Jesus was forsaken. The injustice is one thing. Now the midday skies have darkened at night, as night, as if it was night, and remains that way for the next three hours. Now the Roman soldiers have been up to a lot and behind a lot of this today, but this phenomenon is definitely not their doing. There is something supernatural happening here, if you're an onlooker that day. Even Jesus is is provoked to speak in this moment. What is it he's saying? Oh, he's talking to God. He's asking him something, quite intently too. Why have you forsaken me, God? Why? Now this is part of the crucifixion that no one, perhaps not even Jesus, expected. Complete and utter abandonment. Even God has turned his face away, withdrawing his fellowship with him. Withdrawing it from him. And this is as bad as it gets. The spitting, the mockery, the insults, the excruciating beatings, the exhaustion, the shame, the pierced hands and feet. Nah, nothing, none of that compares to the abandonment that Jesus is experiencing right now. The millions just went to billions. Unfathomable. All those horrific scenes, we witness the unthinkable, unimaginable, lowest point. And as the song goes, on a hill you created, abandoned in darkness to die. And we begin to see that Jesus took no shortcuts. He took no shortcuts. The first wine offered, as you may remember, mixed with myrrh, was designed to dull the senses, keep him from having to endure the cross with full consciousness. Jesus refuses, taking it. And now there's a second wine, sour wine, and it's offered to keep him conscious for as long as possible, and thus having the effect of prolonging his pain. This is the wine that Jesus drank. Other criminals, and you and I, would have done it the other way around, right? We would have taken the first, ease our torment, and pass on the second so as not to prolong this horrific pain any longer. But not Jesus. 
But at last, he died. There were no shortcuts for Jesus today on the road of suffering and death. It should have been someone else on that cross. Barabbas, any other criminal, any other sinner, you or me. But it was Jesus instead. As a silent lamb to the slaughter, he substituted himself for you and me, the one true king, fully human, fully God, took on the full extent of pain, shame, and torment, like a criminal, with criminals, and worst of all, utterly abandoned by God. He knew that he had to shed his blood in order to become the supreme sacrifice for the sins of all people. He refuses to refuse to take the easy way out. And the nails, the nails weren't the things that kept him on that cross. It was love. Love kept him there. That, these are the lengths that God went for us to be redeemed, freed from the power of sin. And so, the low point on the cross becomes the high point. The abandonment by God that Jesus experienced was the first and last time to ever happen. Something new had begun. But today's story is not yet done. Two things happened immediately after Jesus breathed his last. The first thing we see is the curtain of the temple being torn in two. The meaning of the curtain's tearing is linked to its old covenant purpose to separate the Israelites from the direct presence of God. He was just too holy. His holiness was just too great for humans to bear in their raw, in our raw brokenness. But because Jesus died on the cross to redeem us, the gates to God's presence are wide open for everyone to walk through. Hence the tearing of this curtain, of this veil. A new era has dawned this minute. And then we witness something else. A Roman centurion, a leader of soldiers, who watched Jesus die up close and personal, comes to faith in Jesus as the Son of God. How incredible. He could have been overseeing any or all of the horrific events that Jesus went through that day, from the mocking, the beating, to the shaming and cross-carrying. Perhaps his men were the ones who, who drove those nails into Jesus' hands and feet. And yet, just after Christ breathed his last, the centurion believed. What a powerful and symbolic moment. It, it took some pretty hectic events to sway this pagan soldier but it happened nonetheless. And today, 2,000 years later, thanks to this text, we get to reflect not, on, not only on how a man's life was changed that day, but also how it signified the beginning of a new era in which people can turn from their sinful ways and believe. At the cross, Jesus drank the wine of his father's wrath down to its very dregs. And he did so for us, for you and me so that we might enjoy the wine of his Father's love and live redeemed forever in the glorious presence of the one who took no shortcuts 
in saving us. So today we recognize that unimaginable, there's that word again, pain of separation that Jesus experienced from God. Jesus bore as the substitute in our place the unending exclusion from God that you and I deserved. All of this because of his love demonstrated on the cross. Theologian Michael Reeves says this, without the cross we could have never imagined the depth and seriousness of what it means to say, God is love. God is love. We remember that the next time that phrase pops in your mind or someone says it to you. So as dark as today's story is, we can still draw incredible hope. For some of us, we may feel as though time or trauma had eroded our trust in Christ, knowing that our entire hope through know this, that our entire hope through pain and suffering is found in Jesus because of his own suffering. Suffering and death are an expected part of life, this side of eternity. And through Jesus, we have the power to overcome suffering. And yet for others, we may feel that something is blocking the way. Know that God loves you outrageously. And because of his outrageous love for you and me, Jesus took away those barriers between him and us so that we could know God and be like him, loving, fulfilled, and free. So I ask you today, in the midst of Holy Week and Easter season, have you put your trust in him? Is it really anchored in him? If not, Perhaps today's the day. Come out of the darkness. Jesus is the victim come victor. Sunday's coming. We'll hear more about that. But today we can proclaim his goodness and greatest, greatness is breaking out in the world. He started something new that day, today. Come into the light where there's freedom. Now, I'm going to move over here. We're going to spend the rest of our time uh, preparing our hearts and, and singing in response, but we want to just sit at the table at communion. I'm going to go over there now. Communion. It's the, the most symbolic way we can remember uh, and reflect on what Jesus did on that cross that day. And uh, today I'd like to point us to two reasons why communion matters. Firstly, we do it because Jesus told us to. Simple. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, On the night he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new thing, the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. We're going to do that in a a couple moments in your own time, but I want to tell you the second reason, another reason why communion matters today. We do it because it allows us to regularly 
humble ourselves before God and receive fresh supplies of his grace and forgiveness. Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians 11, everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. If there is known sin in our lives, it's a time to confess and receive his abundant forgiveness. If there is need in our lives, it's a time to take into ourselves all the strength and wisdom we need from God. Friends, let's prepare our hearts in this way. I'm going to pray now, and as, as, we, as we round off, uh, um, the team's going to go ahead and, and begin a new song. And it's during that time of worship that I want you to make full use of this space and time to do just what we talked about. Examine yourself. And take the, take the bread, take the cup, and commune with Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, this day you knew was coming from the beginning. It's a day you knew you couldn't just scrub over or just zoom ahead to the next uh, scene. It was happening. And it happened. And it was a deeply personal and painful thing you had to go through. Your only son to die, to die an undeserved death. But it had to happen as wild and overwhelming and mind-blowing it is for us, our finite human minds, to understand that such a personal thing can be done by such a, a God that can only be measured on a scale that we just don't have. A love that is just beyond our fathoming. But it was demonstrated on that cross that day. It is overwhelming, God, and yet it is freeing, literally freeing to accept this truth of what happened that day. So today we do have a somber attitude, but we also have at the same exact time one with a, a, jo- a budding joy in our hearts because of what happened for us by you that day. So, Father, as we take this bread and take this cup, we remember you from that day. And we give praise for you. We praise to you. And we bask in your glorious presence, God, that we get to be with you. All because of today's pivotal moment. Thank you, God. Amidst the tragedy, amidst the injustice, you reign supreme. Thank you. Amen.